Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. So glad that you've decided to join us today as we continue our series called The Bible for Grownups. Uh, over the course of this month, we've been looking at this tension that for many of us, as we were growing up in our faith, we felt a pull or a struggle to maybe potentially actually grow out of our faith. This week, I was watching um, and researching and came across a pastor in Canada and was kind of watching his story unfold. And he, here's a pastor who went from being someone who every week was teaching from the Bible to being someone, because of some of the things in the Bible, walking away from his faith. And that one of the kind of personal challenges and pressure points for me, even as a parent, is I want to make sure that the faith that I'm um, Passing on to my kids is a faith that they can grow up in, not just grow out of. And that one of the challenges that can happen in the process of growing up in faith is that sometimes we don't always get the, uh, the, the complexity or we have an experience or a moment happens. Um, the fairy tale reality doesn't play out the way we, we thought. And to kind of kick off this series uh, at the very beginning of this month, I said, look, this is the foundation I want us to have for all of our dialogues around this, that I said, look, Jesus did not write the Bible. That it's important, not just that we know the Bible stories, but that the story of the Bible is essential too if we're gonna grow in confidence and continue to grow up in our faith. That Jesus is the reason for the Bible. That the central event of Christianity, the hinge point of history, the one thing that all of this stands on is that there is a tomb in Jerusalem that is empty and that it's been empty for over 2,000 years because Jesus was placed in that tomb and three days later he walked out. And in the process, he birthed a movement that transformed the world and is still in the process of transforming the world today. And that that's the foundational point for us to have any conversation through this month as we talk about the Bible for grown-ups. But what I want to do today is maybe press in a little bit more um, because the reality is, is that either you and I are going to meet someone whose um, story is that they grew out of faith or we're going to be faced with a moment and a challenge where we could be, ten could be tempted or potentially find a faith that we could grow out of too. And, and I recognize for some of us that our faith is such a central part of our lives, and the idea of kind of growing out of our faith just seems to be absurd. But what I recognize and what some of us have already experienced is that life has a way of shaking us to our core. That we start off and that we have this solid belief, and then we go through a divorce, or then we get that cancer kind of diagnosis, or then our family starts to fall apart, and all of a sudden our belief starts to evaporate, and we start to wonder, was all this just a lie? Because I tried to honor God, and it didn't play out like I thought it would. I tried to be faithful. I, I was giving generously, and then I lost my job. I, you know, I, I fought to make sure my relationships honored God, and then he had an affair, or she walked away. And in those moments, our faith can be shaken to a place where we really do start to wonder, is this just a lie? And I look, for some of us, this may not be something that maybe you'll ever go through, but someone you love will. 
And if, if for no other reason, I'm giving this series, this, this message today because I've got a little girl and a little boy that I hope if they hit this, one of these three walls in their future, that this message is still there, even if I'm not there, to give them wisdom. Because there are three distinct things that I want to look at today as we talk about the Bible for grown-ups. Three kind of catalysts that can happen and play out in the moment in the lives of of just everyday life that could be the thing that prevents us from growing up in our faith and potentially be the reason we grew out of it. It's all three of these different items are actually found in the same story. And I want to kind of set the backdrop for you. Um, In Mark chapter 4, we see all three of these play out in slow motion. Uh, For those who are kind of new to Christian scripture, Mark was written, um, it's an early kind of biographical account of life of Jesus. It's named after the author, Mark. Mark um, gets his source material from Peter. And so Peter, who's one of the original followers of Jesus, sits down with Mark and says, hey, here's what's happened to me. Here's how it went down. And he tells him all these stories. And Mark 4, the entire chapter is framed around this, a boat. This boat actually is nicknamed the Jesus boat, even though there's no historical uh, reason to believe Jesus was actually ever in this boat or his disciples. But it's called the Jesus boat because this boat was discovered in 1986 when the Sea of Galilee had experienced an extreme drought in the region. And as the water rescinded, um, some kind of amateur archaeologists discovered in the ground, poking up, they discovered this. And as... 12-year process unfolded, they were eventually able to, re- to bring this up out of the water and into um, kind of uh, solid ground and were able to coat it. And in the process, they gave us a picture, a living picture of a glimpse of what a boat in that first century would have looked like. It's about 20 feet long, it's about 7 feet wide, and it's about 4 feet high from the bottom to the top along the edges. And that this, this type of boat is central to Mark chapter 4. It begins, the opening portion of the chapter begins with Mark um, writing about Jesus being in this boat, pushing off from the shore so that he could speak to the large crowds that had gathered. And the section that we're going to get into today um, is Jesus is in that same boat, and the day has gone by, the crowds have been taught, Jesus has performed and, and done amazing things, And the day is wrapping up, and now Jesus wants to move on to the next location. It says, that day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side, the other side being the Sea of Galilee. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There there were also other boats with him. So the, the, the disciples, the followers of Jesus, are now kind of traversing across the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee was um, kind of geographically unique. Um, It's... um, kind of landscape, the way it's positioned, where it's positioned, um, tends to cause frequent storms to come up. So some of Jesus' followers were fishermen. They were from this area. And so they were used to the storms that could arise at a moment's notice. But this night was going to be a little different. You see, it says that a furious squall. Now remember that Peter is telling Mark these details. And so for Peter to say a furious squall came up, Peter's like, look, 
I, I grew up fishing in the Sea of Galilee. I know what it's like for one of those Sea of Galilee storms to, to come up out of nowhere. This wasn't like one of those kind of storms. This thing was ferocious. It was furious. It was terrifying. And it comes up out of nowhere. And the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. And so as he's telling this to Mark, Mark is like, oh, it's uh, swamped. Another word for swamp would be full. And in other words, that four-foot difference between the bottom of the boat and the top of the boat, the waves are cresting over and beginning to fill the boat. And the boat, when it says nearly swamped, it's that the boat is actually beginning to sink. Now, the back of the boat was higher than the front, and so most likely the boat was beginning to tilt forward, and water was beginning to rush in, and it was starting to go down. And it says that, so Jesus was in the stern, the back of the boat, which is the higher piece, and he's sleeping on a cushion. And the disciples woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? So here's the setting. Jesus is asleep. He's exhausted. He's spent all day talking, teaching, performing miracles. And so he's collapsed on the back. Some of you know what it's like after a hard day's work. And you could probably sleep, sleep through a storm too. And he's, that's what he's doing. And the disciples are watching the boat slowly start to kind of dip down, down, down. And they go and they shake him. And they're like, teacher, don't you care if we drown? They're like, look, you're our leader. Do something. Because we're terrified that we're not going to make it. And that what we see play out in this story, I think has a lot of implications for us as we learn to embrace the Bible for grown-ups. As we begin to lean in, and that part of kind of a defining moment in that growing up in our faith oftentimes um, has the same three catalysts for the three things that can cause us to grow out of our faith too. And you actually see those three things in this story. You see experiences, emotions, and expectations. Oftentimes, there's an experience, there's some emotions, or there's some unmet expectations that are often at the root of us being tempted to, to kind of weaken or grow out of the faith that we have. And for, for many of us, you know, when you read about David and Goliath, and all of a sudden you realize that sometimes Davids get killed by Goliaths, that what made David and Goliath so exceptional was the fact that it was an exception to the rule, or that good people can get sick and bad people can become billionaires. You start to struggle and wrestle with, say, well, maybe, maybe those Bible stories I was taught growing up don't really have a lot for the grown-up life. And that in this, this simple passage, this very kind of short moment, we see all three of these catalytic pieces present. The first is experiences. The experiences that we go through that catch us off guard, that they end up marking us, that go way beyond just the moment that we find ourselves in. I don't know about you, but this, this thing here has caused all kinds of interesting thoughts for me. This is a murder hornet. That's not really its name. It's an, it's an Asian or Japanese hornet. There's a very 
scientific name for it, but colloquially it's been called the murder hornet because um, this is actually in life size. You can ride its back, not really, um, but in my head that's what it feels like. It's ginormous. It is massive. This thing flies in and can massacre an entire colony of bees in a few hours by decapitating their heads. Like this thing is like the Jason Bourne of insects, right? I mean, it is intense. And so like, but, but before this thing haunted me in my sleep, I was haunted by this thing. Now I know it looks cute because it's a bumblebee. All kind of doing its pollination thing on that cute yellow flower. But see, what I was plagued by growing up, what I was haunted by was this thing. This terrified me more than murder hornets did. You see, because when I was uh, about um, 8, 10 years old, I was playing out in a wooded area, and we were playing hide-and-seek, and I went to dive on the ground. And when I dived on the ground to hide from my friends, I landed on something and I felt a sharp sting in my leg. So I jumped up immediately. And when I jumped up, All of a sudden, out of nowhere, swarms of these things came flying at me. I was bitten and stung over 40 plus times. I'm screaming in fear. There are bees trying to climb into my mouth. They are pressing up into my nose. I see them hanging off of my eyelids. They're all over my face, all over my body, and they are lighting me up. A few hours later, I just passed out from the pain. This marked me in my bloodstream today. I'm still supposed to carry an EpiPen because my body's reaction from that day. But that experience almost 30 years ago still shows up in surprising ways. On my honeymoon um, almost 15 years ago, to this month. Happy anniversary, right? So in a couple of weeks, it'll be 15 years. So 15 years ago, um, on the second day, I'm married to my beautiful bride. We're walking into this mountain cabin, and as we're walking in, all of a sudden, I hear that sound that creates a supernatural, terrifying uh, fear response. The and I look, and there's a bee flying right at me. And so I did the only thing you do when you're in a moment like that. I was behind my wife, and there was the mountain cabin. So I threw her into the bushes towards the bee, and I ran inside and closed the door. Because I figured she loved me, and so she was willing to take a bee hit for me, right? I mean, that's what you do. You push your bride into the bushes so you don't get bit by a bee. That is how you start your second day of marriage strong, right? I mean, like my poor wife had to be thinking, okay, I don't like the trend line. Yesterday was good. That was the baseline. Today he pushed me in a bush because of a bee. I don't want to see day three with this guy, right? I mean, so this was pretty terrifying. But the reason I tell you that is because that experience marked me, but it also went beyond just me and even affected my relationship because I have been apologizing for 15 years for shoving my wife into the bushes because of a bee. But in that moment, that bee, that experience robbed me of a relationship I had with someone who was so much better and so much greater than a bee. And that sometimes, if we're not careful, the experiences we find ourselves in can cause us to experience tunnel vision. And we lose sight of the grander reality. We lose sight of the bigger picture of life. 
And all we see is what's right in front of us. I was reading an article last night um, about um, this common experience that humans have called getting lost. It's one of the scariest um, things that can happen to you when you're little. Think about how, how afraid you were of like potentially um, like getting lost from your parents. And that one of the things that happens when people are lost is that most, most times, um, because our human brains, um, we tend to walk around in circles. We don't even realize it when we get disoriented. We just, we go around in circles. But the most startling fact was this part of the study in this article was saying that most people, when they get lost, they never actually travel more than 100 yards from the point in which they got lost in the first place. Like, think about that. You may be in the woods for days, and you never travel more than the average, the average person lost never travels more than 100 yards from the place they got lost because they just naturally start doing circles because they, they get disoriented. And I feel like sometimes that's what happens when we go through these experiences is we get disoriented and we lose sight of the reality. In that moment, it sometimes can cause you to shove your wife into a bush and run into the house and lock the door and scream, take her instead, not me. Right? Like, I mean, it happens. But the experiences oftentimes aren't by themselves. There's often a, a kind of an emotional aspect that goes with it. I remember um, early in my Christian journey, I became a Christian halfway in college, and um, my life was completely changed. I knew that I was different from the inside out. I woke up every day with that experience. Um, like, uh, if my, my little girl, um, Ella, wakes up every day, and it's the greatest day ever. She comes out. It's like the sun is shining, like birds are chirping, unicorns are flying over the rainbow that came up with the sun. I mean, it's like cupcakes and sprinkles everywhere. Um, I am not that type. I am more like um, REM, everybody hurts, okay? Like, it's just like, like, uh, like Eeyore, but with a little bit better disposition. Um, it's so... In the aftermath of becoming a Christian, I woke up every day and it was like being my daughter. It was like, the day is awesome, the sun is bright, the grass is green, the sky is blue, I love life. And it was a radical soundtrack shift in my life. And it was because of my faith. But about nine, ten months into my journey, I, I started waking up and the music, you know, like, everything is awesome, had started to slowly kind of shift to like, when the day is long and the night, the night is yours alone. Like, I started kind of slowly turning towards the, like, dark again. And I remember sitting down with a group of people, and I was so terrified that I was losing my faith. Because I would went from all of this excitement about Christianity to now the, some of the darkness and the kind of the drabness of life was starting to kind of creep back in. It was sort of that wet blanket feeling again. And one of the best things that ever happened to me was around that nine-month mark and voicing to someone who was wiser than me that, hey, I'm afraid I'm losing my faith. And they're like, why? And it's like, because I don't feel the feelings I used to feel. And they're like, well, I, I want to encourage you. It doesn't sound like to me you're losing faith. It sounds like to me you're losing feelings. And feelings aren't the same thing as faith. In fact, they gave me an illustration kind of in that season that has continued to help me. They're like, look, um, the train engine of your faith, that train car, 
The train engine was never meant to be your feelings. It was, it was meant to be the grace and the God's love for you and your, your commitment out of that. Like that is the engine on your train. Feelings are just the caboose. It's a nice thing to have, but you don't need it for the train to get where it's going. And that was a really freeing moment for me because I realized I no longer had to define my faith by the feelings I felt. And as I've gotten older, as I've matured in my 15 years relationship with my wife and with my kids, it, it's, it's become even more crystal clear to me that feelings as a driver actually are not a sign of maturity. They're a sign of immaturity. A sign of maturity in relationship, a sign of maturity in love, and a sign of maturity in faith is that the commitment, the choice, precedes the feeling. And that the feelings aren't the driver for the action. They're the benefit and response to the action. That if I wait till I feel like I love my wife, there are some days where I'm not going to move or act as much as I should. But I've always found that if I act, if I move, if I do, then what oftentimes comes on the backside of that is a whole kind of wash of feelings that are appropriate. You know, when it's late at night and, you know, she's three feet from the thing that needs to be turned on or turned off because we use a noise machine. And I'm, because of my position, like nine to 15 feet from that item. And she's like, oh, we forgot to turn on the sound machine, which is code for you need to turn on the sound machine. And I'm laying in the bed, and I'm like doing the math. I'm like, woman, you are 36 inches from that sound machine. You can get that sound machine faster than I could. You could have gotten to that and gotten back by the time you said that phrase. And I'm like sitting there, and nothing in me wants to get out of my comfy bed where I'm exhausted. And I make a choice to traverse that 12 or 15 feet, to turn it on, and they get back in the bed. And it's amazing how I do not feel like doing it on the way. I had this a couple nights ago. I, thought, I was like literally sitting over there soaking. Like, you are 36 inches. What, what, why? And then on the way back after I did it, and I got in bed, and I like snuggled up. And she's like, thank you. And I'm like, girl, you know I'd do anything for you. I'd climb a mountain as long as that mountain wasn't more than 15 feet, right? And I'm like snuggled up. All of a sudden, the feelings flow then. And I believe that oftentimes, if we're not careful, we can allow the emotions to rob our focus, to hijack our motivations. Feelings were never meant, were never meant to be our motivation. They were meant to be the whipped cream and the cherry on the top of that Sunday. But you can experience a Sunday without the whipped cream or the cherry. And that if we're not careful, those emotions become the replacement. And we're, our faith is only as strong as the feelings we have in that moment. Which is why maybe for some of us, when we look at our faith and we were to track it, it looks like a stock market because it's up and down, up and down. Because we're allowing our feelings to be the driving force instead of it being a reaction to the initial action of our commitment and love out of what God has done for us. And the third is around expectations. And I think this is where, um, for many of us growing up, maybe with faith stories being taught to us, that it was, we were never taught these things, but I think what happens is you, you, they get caught. 
you hear about David defeating Goliath. You hear about God bringing Moses out of the promised land. You hear about, um, you know, Hannah, um, who struggled with infertility, having Samuel. You read these stories of people and victory and, you know, like breakthrough and financial provision. And then those stories start to mirror back on your life and you notice what's missing. You're five years into the infertility and there's still no Samuel in your life. Or you were faithful and generous and you even tithe and you were giving over 10% of what you make back to God. And all of a sudden you're faced with unemployment. And all of a sudden some of those unvoiced expectations spill over. Like God, I, I lived for you and now He walked away from me. Like, I was faithful to you and to him, and he abandoned me. And it starts to feel a little bit like you abandoned me too. And all of a sudden, you're sitting with a doctor, and you've done everything you could your entire life. You've exercised. You've taken care of yourself. And now the doctor is looking at you, and you're in your 40s, and they're like, it's not good. Something came back on your report, and we need to talk about it. And all of a sudden, that unvoiced expectation that you had with God, this contract that he never signed with you, is kind of brought up to the surface. And you're like, but God, look look what I've done for you. Weren't you supposed to do these things for me? And that, I think one of the most destructive things that can happen to our faith is that we allow the unvoiced, unbiblical expectations to begin to, to shape and to affect how we live out our faith. God never promised for you or for me that if we lived for him, that it would be easy, convenient. He never promised any of that. He never promised that if, if you practice generosity, that it necessarily means you're always going to be financially like well. Like bad things happen to good people. And good things happen to bad people. And the reality is that we're all bad and there's a little bit of good in all of us. And that it's, it's not as clean cut maybe as what we grew up with. And that as you start to drill into it and you start to live it out and walk through experiences, these little infractions where you believe God was supposed to have X, Y, or Z for you and He didn't. And eventually it just builds up and you're like, okay, God, three strikes, you're out and I'm out. And as I was thinking about that pastor this week, I realized, you know what? It was actually a gift for him. Because if, I, I'm not sure that if, we've, if, if we're growing in a faith that you can grow out of, if you're growing in a faith that you can grow out of, it's probably not a faith that you should have ever grown in in the first place. Because it's a fairy tale. It's not true. That the Christian faith is so, so much bigger, so much greater in its promise than health, wealth. It's so much truer than a God who just gives an exchange or is the Santa Claus in the sky. In fact, what's fascinating to me is that the backdrop of Christianity is that the worst possible thing happened to the best possible person. I don't think any Christian legitimately 
when looking at the Christian story that birthed it all, can simply say, if I pull these levers, then God's going to do this for me. Because reality is, is that the best person ever experienced the worst possible thing ever. And if that was the reality and the backdrop of what birthed Christianity, then I don't think there's room in our faith for just simple, like, hey, if you do this for God, God's going to bless you, and this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. I'm not saying those things don't happen sometimes, but I'm just saying that the expectation for those to happen all the time is not healthy, and they end up robbing us of what we could have. And that if we're going to experience the Bible for grown-ups, if we're going to grow up in a faith that's worth growing up in, then we have to, to realize that maybe there's something to do with those experiences and the emotions and the expectations that actually God was behind in the first place. Maybe that he was, like Jesus, open to using some of it. So um, my daughter... It's hilarious. Um, one of the, a few months ago, I found myself having an argument with her um, at bedtime because I caught her smuggling this into the bed. I looked over and I was, I was like, she's acting suspicious. And I'm like, oh my goodness, look at that. It's, it's the phone case. It's her phone. Right? Well, sometimes I'm sitting there and I'm like, hey, sweetie, what are you doing? She's like, I'm texting my BFF. Or hold on a second. I'm, I'm talking to my friend. And, and literally, like getting ready for bed one night, I found that she had smuggled her phone into her bed. And I'm like, Ella, your phone does not belong in the bed. And I'm like, why am I arguing with an eight-year-old about a paper phone? Because that's all it is. It's, a piece of car, it's like a piece of cardstock that's got little apps drawing on it. it I mean, it's adorable, right? Like, like, there's her little music app. She can like press and you know jam out to whatever it is she's jamming out to. And as I was thinking about this passage, I realized in some ways this is a lot, a lot like what Jesus was doing. Jesus recognized that sitting in that boat that night in the midst of the storm were people who had faith that were a lot like this. Like this looks like a phone. It's rooted. There's, it's a reflection of a reality. But this, this doesn't nearly compare to this, this is so much better than this. This allows me to actually text and call and listen to real music. This is just make-believe. This is actually make. And what Jesus is doing in that boat, I believe, is he used those three things to do something extraordinary. Notice it says that he gets up. He rebuked the wind and he said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wave died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and they asked each other, who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this? The terror they had for the storm had been exchanged for a healthy, reverent awe of the one in the boat with them. That the disciples had stepped in, absolutely committed and convinced that the faith they had 
was a faith worth following. And in the process of the storm, the expectations, the emotions, and the experiences helped to reveal to them that what they were holding in their hand wasn't quite as good as what Jesus held in his. And that what I believe the entire Gospels, so much of the Gospel storyline can, can, be, can be completely visualized with Jesus intentionally over three years exchanging this for this. And that I think that what comes into our life through emotions, expectations, through experiences, things that we are convinced could be things that could derail us, don't have to be things to destroy our faith. They can actually be gifts to help deepen our faith. That as Christians, or maybe people who are struggling with Christianity, we don't have to be afraid of the experiences we walk through, the emotions we have, or the unmet expectations being bubbled up to the surface. Because if we're willing to embrace them, what we can find, like what we see in this story, is that God is trying to give us an encounter with Him that exchanges the weak, the shadowy, the, the less than for the greater. And that there is a faith that is childlike, that can mark you as an adult. But all the childish parts of the faith, the self-centeredness, the selfishness, they get sanded away each time we walk through those expectations, experiences, and emotions. God can use them to sand away the parts of our faith that can't withstand those three. And in the end, we're left with something worth far more valuable than just a sheet of paper. We're left with something that connects us to a God who never fails us, who gives us a grander perspective that the one who's with us is greater than the storm around us, and that a God who is faithful, who's never failed, can even carry us through our valleys of the shadow of death. And that ultimately God's desire as we grow up in our faith, is that we would grow into a faith that can sustain us through whatever our grown-up years have for us. And that the Bible for grown-ups, no matter who you are, is so much better than just some flannel graph, is so much greater than just some simple stories that have been reduced down to some simple plot lines that you can follow along as an eight-year-old. That the story of Christianity is so much bigger than just Sunday morning, Sunday schools. But it's that the God of the universe stepped into this planet to pursue you and I. And that through what he did almost 2,000 years ago by walking out of the grave, you and I can walk in that same power today. And that no matter what you are going through, no matter what you're experiencing, your faith doesn't have to be destroyed by it. It can actually be deepened because the God who was on that boat exchanging their weak faith for something stronger is still in the business of doing that today too.